0: Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1-9 if necessary. The importance of Scripture, the emphasis is on cleansing before we come into the presence of God. So 1 John 1-9 gives us that opportunity to admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, and we are cleansed from all unrighteousness so that we are prepared to study the Word and to advance in our spiritual growth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, that your faithfulness is grounded upon the integrity of your character, and we know that you are always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. That no matter how the circumstances of our lives change, no matter what the vagaries of life may bring, we know that you are always steadfast, you are always stable, and you are the rock upon which we ground our lives. Now, Father, as we study your word and continue our study in the life of Abraham, we pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us by the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. We're continuing our study in Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15, and this is the key section on the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now the chapter began just after Abraham's great victory over Melchizedek, where the Uh, Five kings of the valley had been defeated by the four-king alliance under Keterleomer as they came in from the east and swept down through the Transjordan area, wiping out a number of different tribal groups, including several groups of giants and several groups of uh, fairly strong military uh, militarized people, the Amalekites and the Amorites, down to the south. And then they, of course, hit Sodom and Gomorrah in that area and then swept on to the north. When they went through Sodom and Gomorrah, they took a number of captives, including Lot. So Abram took his servants as well as the, those who worked for his uh, allies and neighbors, the Amorites there. And they headed north where they met up with the forces of Keterleomer. And the Scripture doesn't go into any detail for us in terms of the battle or the strategy or how they took them. Uh, I'm just guessing, but from the sense of the passage and in comparison with armies of that time, this could have been an army of 15 to 20,000. And uh, Abram has 318 trained servants plus the allies from uh, Mamre, Eshkol, and Honor, the Amorites, who... Uh, were his neighbors. So he may have had as many as a 1,000, maybe 2,000 if we're really generous, but we don't know. He didn't have near the numbers of the others, so it was a remarkable battle, probably a victorious victory. He returned from that victory, had his meeting with Melchizedek outside of Salem, and then he goes on home. And the next thing we learn is in verse 1 where God says to Abram, don't be afraid. Now, fear is an underlying tone in this whole passage. He is told not to be afraid in verse 1. And as I pointed out last time, when he gets into the section where where the covenant ceremony itself takes place, Abram falls into a deep sleep, and a horror or a deep dread falls upon him. So the sense that, that runs throughout this passage is this element of fear, And fear is something that's common to every single one of us. Fear is the basic orientation of the sin nature towards life. This began in the Garden of Eden. As soon as Adam ate of the fruit, they recognized that something was missing. There was an inadequacy. There was an instability in life. You know, you might even say there was a tremor in the forest since Star Wars is coming out this week. But they they knew something was different. And when God came to... Uh, On his regular daily visit, they hid And when God interrogated them and said, Why did you hide? And said, We heard the sound of you in the garden, and we were afraid. That's almost a deep metaphysical or ontological fear at the core of our being goes hand in hand with the arrogance that is the orientation of the sin nature. The man in arrogance wants to make life on his own. Now here, Jack, did you hear that? Yeah, we, it, it, it fluttered there like it had been. We're testing different microphones and systems, and this is a different system, so it just, just fluctuated there. So bear with us as we try to figure out what's causing that momentary glitch every now and then when I, when I teach. So fear lurks at the core of the sin nature because in arrogance we want to make life work, but at the core of our being we know we're finite. We're finite in our knowledge. We're finite in our power. We're finite in everything. We can't make life work on our own. And yet, as a result of Adam's sin, the the bent of the sin nature is to try to make life work on our own, to try to control All the details, all the circumstances, all the people, so that somehow we have a sense of stability, a sense of certainty, a sense that somehow tomorrow is going to be okay, and this house of cards that we've erected in our life isn't just going to come crashing down. Now, there are times in life when you may not be as aware of how uh, sensitive the circumstances of life are, but as soon as... Uh, that happens. Something takes place. You have an automobile accident or there's a a drop in the stock market or something happens with your health or somebody's health nearby. And we realize that life sometimes, or the stability in life, just hangs by a, a thread. And it often can disappear very quickly. And that's why We often have this underlying sense of fear or anxiety or worry. For some people it's more pronounced than others. Now whenever we're threatened, whenever our safety or security or our future safety or security seems to be at stake, we react with this basic emotional sin of fear. And fear brings to the surface the fact that we're just incapable of making life work on our own. We become fearful with regard to our future. The older you get, the more concerned you may become with what happens if I have a heart attack? What happens if I have a stroke? What happens if my spouse has a stroke or a heart attack? Or what happens if suddenly I'm incapacitated or if I start losing my memory? At any point in life, certain things can start happening that seem to really upset us. When you're younger, you can often look and say, well, what happens if I lose my job? And we see examples such as with Enron a few years ago when people have put their life savings into a pension plan, a retirement plan with a company or corporation, and as they get, just get on the edge of retirement, everything is lost. And so there are often just the realities of living in the cosmic system make us Fearful. And this is the same situation you have with Abram. We don't know what the precise focal point of his fear was, but we can speculate because the focal point of his fear wasn't too different from the focal point of our own fears at times. He's just had this great victory, and in that victory he's defeated a major military power of his day, and that military power could come back. We're not told that he destroyed or killed Keterleomer or any of the other uh, three kings in that alliance they could have uh, put their army back together and come after him in vengeance he's uh, getting older He's not hasn't actually lived half his life yet but at, as he's in his 80's he's beginning to think about the fact that he may not be able to have uh, children what about this promised seed that God promised him and what about his future and the destiny of his of his children so he's concerned about this now in the context of our fear we consistently have in the scripture the command of God not to be afraid when we get in the New Testament we're reminded of the promise that Paul told T- Timothy when he said that God has not given us a spirit of timidity and The old King James translated that fear. It's actually a different word than fear. It's that idea of of more like timidity or uncertainty. But God has given us power and love and discipline. So there is a juxtaposition for the believer between that sin nature orientation of fear and anxiety that's linked to our own arrogance and self-absorption and the stability and certainty that the believer can have in the midst of the most in unstable and uh, uncertain circumstances because we know that despite the trappings of life and the, 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 the camouflage that we often throw up to try to give, a, give our, ourselves a sense of stability that we've achieved on our own, we know that the only source of real d- uh, dependency, day-to-day uh, stability is the Lord Jesus Christ. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that the solution to our fear and to all the problems that we face is in the character of God. This is what we see when we come to verse 7. When we come to verse 7. Then he, that is God, says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. The first point that the Lord is making is a reference to His own character. Now, I've pointed out the last two lessons as we've gone into Genesis 15 that we have a dialogue here. God speaks, Abram speaks, God speaks, and then there's a parenthetical comment in verse 6. And then God speaks again in verse 7. And then Abram speaks. There's this ongoing conversation. But what undergirds this conversation is are two doctrines. Do, the first doctrine is that man is oriented to fear apart from God. And the second doctrine is that God is faithful and dependable and when man trusts God, there is stability in the life. That's the point of verse 6 as i pointed out. It's a tremendous verse for its doctrine related to imputation and justification which I went over the last time but I think it's important for us to recognize in the in the structure of chapter 15 that this is also being offered as the foundation for fear and insecurity and instability in life see modern man when uh, faces fear and anxiety and instability and we think oh what's going to happen, and when we press the panic button and start running around trying to uh, make life work and shore up all the uncertain things around us, uh, we forget what the real source of stability is. And man is always trying to do that. And we try to find stability in psychological gimmicks. And if you turn on television, you watch Dr. Phil or you watch... Uh, you listen on some of the uh, talk shows or you even listen to some of the Christian psychologists. They always give us some sort of way to try to shore that up. Even among Christian psychologists, it's a mixture of psychology with with a Scripture. And often people get deceived because they hear the Scripture and think, well, this is solid. Well, the Scripture, of course, is solid. But what I find often is that the use of Scripture isn't that uh, that clear or that correct. I remember back when uh, I was in seminary and uh, we were all forced to take this class on pastoral psychology and counseling. And uh, I remember being in there with Randy Price. And we would sit there and Randy would, would keep a list of how the verses that were used to shore up the psychological points didn't fit. And we would go back after class and we would sit down and look the verses up in context, and they had nothing to do with how they were being utilized in the classroom to shore up this basically humanistic Freudian system of psychology. What the scripture shows is the doctrine's important that in imputation, which is the imputation, the crediting of Christ's righteousness to the believer is the ultimate foundation for all stability in life because that's where our salvation begins. And that was the starting point of stability for Abraham. And the verb that's used in that verse, he believed in the Lord, as I pointed out in the past, is from the Hebrew verb aman. And it has as its root the idea of that which is steadfast or stable, putting your focus on that which is unshakable. And so we have this idea of faith. Faith isn't this wishy-washy kind of thing that modern man claims it is, that after you get past all uh, empirical knowledge and all human reason, and you just can't have any certainty, well, then you just sort of make this existential leap of faith. And so faith isn't really knowledge. It's always the human viewpoint systems always juxtapose faith to knowledge. But the Bible doesn't. The Bible sees faith as another form of knowledge. It's the evidence of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. It is as sure, as certain as anything that we might see, but because its source is God, the source is God, we know that with certainty, uh, that we have a certainty that goes beyond even the knowledge we gain from empiricism. So Abraham, we're reminded in verse 6, had believed, had already believed in the Lord, and he had accounted it to him or credited or imputed it to him for righteousness. So that's the foundation. Doctrine really matters. Doctrine really makes a difference in life. But you have to learn how to think it through so that when you go through life and you get hit with these things that that, uh, blindside us, and suddenly we, we're aware of the uncertainties and the vagaries of life uh, in ways that we haven't been before, and all of a sudden we realize how tenuous things really are, we have to have the mental discipline to go back to the Word and say, okay, what's my starting point? And the starting point, first of all, God and His character. God and His character. That's what God is saying to to Abram in verse 7, I am Yahweh, who brought you up out of the Ur of the Chaldees. And notice how God doesn't just say, I'm God, believe in Me, but He reminds Abram of how he has trusted Him in the past. It's not just this sort of empty faith in faith. It is not just believe Me in a vacuum. But he says, see, I've got a track record, Abram. I'm the God you trusted when you left Ur of the Chaldees and you went to Haran. I'm the God who continued to provide for you. And in the background, you you know that all the other things that had been transpiring in Abram's life since then have been overseen by God. So he says, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit. So there's a promise there related to possession. I brought you out of the earth, of the Chaldees for a purpose, and I'm going to accomplish my purpose. The same thing is true for us, is that God has saved us to accomplish a purpose. So when we think about fear, we need to recognize, first of all, that the solution to all fear is to begin with the character of God, to just work your way through the essence of Of God, His sovereignty, His righteousness, His justice, His love, His eternal life. When we think about the fact that God is eternal, our problems are temporal, they begin to shrink in size. When we think about omniscience, we know that God knew about all of these problems from eternity past. And so it doesn't surprise Him even though it may knock us for a loop. We know that God is omnipresent, so He is just as much present with me today in the midst of this crisis as He was yesterday when everything was going well. God is omnipotent, which means He is more powerful than any problem I can face, and He has given me a spirit of power according to 2 Timothy 1.7. We have access to that power through God the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God so the next time you you hit something that is a crisis, you feel that sin nature want to shift into the fear mode and the panic mode, the place to start is a focus on the character of God. Read the Psalms sometimes. It's amazing how many times as you read the Psalms, David starts off with what theologians call a lament. He's focusing on his problem. And that's where we all are. We all start off focusing on that problem and self-absorption. The problem's bigger than us. It's bigger than everything. We're, oh, woe is me. Everything's going to be wiped out. My enemies surround me. Everything's going to, going to be lost. And then as David presents his, the issue before God, he begins to talk about God as his rock, his fortress, God is the one who has uh, worked on his behalf in certain situations in the past. And as you go through that psalm, you can see David's attitude shift as he moves his focus from the problems to the God who is greater than the problems. So as we think about fear, the first thing is a solution. To fears to all human problems begins with the character of God. The second point is that we have to recognize that Jesus Christ controls history. We've seen this in Hebrews 1-2. He is the one who made the ages. This is indicated by this purpose clause that God brought him, Abram, out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. That's, per, that's future tense to give you this land to possess it. And Abram never possessed the land in his lifetime. The writer of Hebrews refers to that in Hebrews 11 because Abram constantly looked forward to that city that was built without hands and he never got there in his life, so he knew eventually there would be a resurrection and he would eventually possess it. But you can only have that level of certainty when you recognize that Jesus Christ controls history, but He also superintends the circumstances of your life and my life. And God just has this remarkable way of bringing circumstances to bear in our lives that put the pressure right on that that sin nature arrogance that easily besets us. It's sort of like when you go to the chiropractor. I don't know if you've ever been to a chiropractor, but I can poke around on my on my back or leg or arm all day long, but you have somebody who's a chiropractor, and they can take their thumb and hardly apply any pressure to the right spot, and you've just never quite felt pain like that. And God has that ability to bring to bear in our lives just the right circumstances, problems, uh, and tests that are specifically designed to challenge Our sin nature in its area of operation where we're most likely to succumb to sin because He's trying to teach us at that point to trust in Him and not to rely upon our comfortable sin nature reaction. Third point, just as God brought Abram out of Ur for a purpose, God saved each of us for a purpose. He is has a purpose of bringing us into conformity with the image of Christ. So there is a design behind the apparent chaos of our lives at times. That no matter what happens, no matter how unplanned for things may be, we know that Jesus Christ is in control. Point number four, we also know that there will be times of testing, times of adversity, times of hardship. We can count on it. Nevertheless, God is in control. And no matter how chaotic things may seem, no matter how unjust things may seem at times, no matter how irrational life may appear, we know that ultimately there is a reason and a purpose and a guiding hand behind everything. And that leads to the fifth point, and that is that the issue... As always, is to teach us doctrine, to give us opportunities to evaluate the doctrine that's in our soul, to uh, see what we learn, to learn about God, to watch Him provide in the midst of those circumstances. But, point number six, the greatest hindrance when we get into fear, the greatest, or get into any test, the greatest hindrance to success is always arrogance. We get caught up. In our own circumstances, we obsess on the details of our lives, on our own plans, our own agenda. See, what happened in the garden was Abram, I'm Adam chose an alternative plan than God's. He had his own agenda. That is, somehow I'm going to make life work on my own terms, and when I eat this fruit, I'm going to have the same knowledge God's, God has so that I can then run my life on my own. And as he, when he ate the fruit he suddenly realized how flawed his reasoning was. He comes face to face with his own affinitude, his own inability to control the details of life, and he sees the chaos that he's brought into his life. But at the same time, there's this fear and anxiety that that we can't accomplish the agenda that we have. But in error. We hold on to that agenda. We just don't want to release that, uh, that plan, that agenda. So we get into operation, operating on the arrogant skills. Now, the arrogant skills as I've developed them include five aspects. The first is self-absorption. In self-absorption, we just focus on our own plan, our own agenda. When we get hurt, we focus on our hurts. When we're disappointed, we focus on our disappointments. When uh, somebody maltreats us or doesn't respond or behave the way we think they should or or if they reject us, whether it's real or perceived rejection, what happens is we focus on that hurt. We focus on that rejection. We focus on how they failed us. At the very center of the pain is this focus on who we are. And that leads to self-indulgence. Self-absorption always leads to self-indulgence. Whatever it is, if we're uh, absorbed with our agenda, then we focus on that agenda. And that agenda becomes more important than Bible doctrine. It's incredible how few people as Christians really come to understand that once you become saved, if you're positive, doctrine becomes your life. It's not just something you do on occasion. But you have to learn to think doctrine. You have to learn to think biblically. It's an overhaul of your life. It's not just something you pick up by going to Bible class once a week or twice a week or listening to a tape every now and then or showing up when you don't have something better to do. So we start indulging our own agenda. Before long, that leads to a certain blindness, and we get into self-justification. We rationalize our behavior, and we learn, we're experts at this. Every single one of us becomes an expert at rationalizing and justifying our sin patterns to the point that by the time we're in our teenage years, I'm convinced most of us are pretty blind to the sin patterns in our own lives. They're so comfortable. Those are our habits. That's how we make things work. That's how we, we handle inser- uncertainty. That's how we handle insecurity. That's how we learn to control the environment around us. We start learning th- those control mechanisms uh, when we're in diapers. If you don't believe that, just spend a uh, couple of days with a two-year-old. Uh, they'll have you all figured out and know just how to pr- press your buttons uh, Within about four or five hours, we are masters of manipulation and control. All that comes out of self-justification. We have to figure out ways to make it work, make it look like we're in control. Somehow we've mastered and things aren't really as unstable as they may appear. And then when we start believing it, we're in self-deception. And self-deception—we don't know how to accurately apply the word. That's why spiritual growth is, it takes time. It's almost like uh, you, you use a, almost a cliche illustration: the peeling of an onion. But that's what it's like. The more we learn, the more we grow, the more we realize all these different layers of self-deception that we have in our life. And the fifth arrogant skill is self-deification. We put ourselves in the place of God. We have fulfilled the temptation that caused Adam's original fall. The serpent said, if you eat of the fruit, you'll be like God. And so, as we get into self-absorption and when we're cranking on our arrogant skills, what happens is that we get caught up into a complex of mental attitude sins. Mental attitude sins are the most devastating of all the sins that we get involved in. In fact, the the sins people focus on, the overt sins, the sins of the tongue, these are simply manifestations of what's going on inside the soul, inside the mind. Point number seven was a review of the arrogant skills. Let's go to an eighth point. In self-absorption, what happens is we start generating mental attitude sins mental attitude sins all flow out of arrogance arrogance is the primary orientation that drives the lust patterns inside the sin nature these mental attitude sins develop in several different areas and i've outlined four areas where we crank on mental attitude sins four uh, four cycles as it were of mental attitude sins I'll call them complexes. We have, first of all, the fear complex. Fear is motivated with a sense that our security, our stability is threatened, our future is threatened, our physical safety is threatened, our emotional safety is threatened, our future plans and hopes and dreams are threatened. Fear often goes along with several other mental attitude sins such as worry, anxiety, dread. We We obsess that things can go wrong. We we often uh, lie in bed in the dark at night and worry about things that might happen. We wake up in the middle of the night thinking about what's going to happen if all of a sudden the investments I have my retirement fund in fold. How am I going to survive? What am I going to do? What about my children? How are they going to handle this problem or that problem that they face? And so fear links up with worry, anxiety, dread, and then it often, if we feed it, we don't deal with it instantly in terms of confession and application of doctrine, claiming promises, then it can develop into a general pessimism about life. As fear develops, we begin to think, well, things are just going to go wrong. And when things do go wrong, it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy, and we're convinced that everything will go wrong. And yet, the Scripture constantly challenges the believer to hope. Hope is positive. Hope is a confident expectation of a glorious future. That doesn't mean we have our heads in the clouds somehow, thinking that everything's just going to be wonderful. For the believer has a true realism Because of our understanding of the world, the cosmic system, and what's going on, but at the same time, we know that God's in control, and so we can have an optimistic confidence in the midst of negative circumstances. It's a true and real confidence based upon Bible doctrine. Fear often operates at a core level along with anger or frustration. When people feel like their life is threatened or their agenda is blocked, you don't get your way, how do you respond? You get irritated. Irritation that's not dealt with through the application of doctrine leads to anger. When you have uh, serious things occur in life that prevent you from achieving your goals, whatever they may be, if you lose your job or if someone mistreats you, you're the victim of uh, gossip or maligning or the public lie at the office, whatever it may be, then your fear can develop into anger. Another complex of sins, of mental attitude sins that often plague us are related to envy. Envy, you have jealousy, envy, this develops from a, a covetousness. Uh, Lust for material things, lust for money, lust for the things that money can buy, the status, the prestige. And materialism classified in the Bible as covetousness and greed are linked with idolatry in two passages, Colossians 3.5 and Ephesians 5.5. That when we're operating on uh, material lust and money lust, that is putting money and material things in the place of God. So there's the envy complex, which is a work of the flesh. Then comes the vengeance complex. This is what happens when we perceive that someone rejects us or someone maltreats us and perhaps they actually have. But we, instead of relying upon God to handle things from the Supreme Court of Heaven, we give into revenge, we nurture thoughts of hatred, malice. Uh, we look forward to certain ways that they will uh, suffer so that we can enjoy their suffering because of uh, the suffering that they've brought into our own lives. And so there's the vengeance complex of sins, and we become resentful when they seem to do well and we don't. This is You see this in some of the Psalms where David David expresses it in its positive sense. He says, how long, O Lord, will the, will the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? And you see that theme expressed in several psalms. And there's, a, there's an element there that is healthy in a recognition in this life that, that often those who are out of fellowship or those who are hostile to God seem to prosper. They seem successful in the eyes of the world. They seem to have happiness and stability But they don't. The Lord often is just giving them what they think they need to be happy only to remove it. Uh, only thing is, in our love for vengeance, the Lord often doesn't let us see Him pull the rug out from under them. Then we have the bitterness complex. You see, there's a progression here. We go from fear and anxiety, and it's often expressed in one direction towards the envy complex, In another direction, that can be expressed in the vengeance complex. And then when nothing seems to happen or this state of affairs goes on and we continue in carnality nurturing our mental attitude sins, then what happens is bitterness. Uh, Bitterness destroys the soul. Bitterness generates even more intense hatred. We become resentful of others. We become negative and pessimistic about others' happiness or success. We become resentful of those who are applying the word and seem to have stability in their lives. We become angry at God and, ang- and angrier at other people, and then we begin to blame others for personal problems. At the core of all of this is we're just absorbed with our own lives and our own problems and our own circumstances and our own failures. And we're blaming everybody in the world but ourselves and our own volition. And what God, God never promised us a life without problems, heartache, difficulties. But he said that in the midst of those disappointments, heartaches, difficulties, and insecurities, he would teach us where the real source of security and happiness and stability was to be found. And that's in his character. And so that's what we see going on at the foundation of this passage. God is reminding Abraham of his faithfulness. He reiterates the promise of a seed in the first five Verses, And then starting in verse 7, he is reiterating the promise of the land. That no matter how uncertain and unstable things may appear at times, Abraham, I am giving this land to you to possess it, to inherit it. Let's go on to verse 8. And he said, that is, Abram said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit, that is, possess it, it's interesting that God has just made this promise twice. He stated it, and Abram says, "I, I want a little confirmation. I-, I want some certainty here. Lord, give me something a little more stable than just your word." And God, in His grace, doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't uh, uh, cast thunderbolts from heaven to take him out. He always meets us where we are. God recognizes that, and th- there's a God in His omniscience knows. The threats that are going to come into Abram's life, and so he gives him confirmation. And this confirmation is such that even now, some 4,000 years later, we still know that this is true. And we still know that the promise, though, uh, not fulfilled, will eventually be fulfilled. And so God is going to establish a contract. With Abram, He's going to set things up on a legal, contractual basis, no different from the legal contract you have with your mortgage or with a credit card or any other legal contract we enter into. And he, it's set up according to the standards of the ancient world. Now, we wouldn't do this today, but this is how a contract was solemnized and put into effect in the ancient world. Verse 9, God says to Abram, "...bring me a three-year-old heifer." a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, we have a problem in this passage. The first problem has to do with understanding the meaning of the word three in the Hebrew. What's interesting is all the modern commentaries that I have, and when you consult various uh, Hebrew dictionaries, they all validate this interpretation. But as I dug back through several works that I have that summarize the ancient rabbinical interpretations, now remember, the rabbis spoke Hebrew as their primary language. Most of these tools that we consult today, the lexicons, the uh, grammars, all are written by Western Europeans, basically, who have Hebrew as a second language. Among the Hebrews, they... Among the rabbis from the time before Christ up through the Talmudic period, there was an intense debate over whether or not this was three-year-old animals or whether it was three animals. And I don't have any solid resolution of the problem. I noticed when I first started looking at this, I said, a three-year-old heifer, there's something about that that bothers me. I know a farmer. I'm going to call up and see what he says about a three-year-old heifer. Well, when I made the phone call, he wasn't around. So I started digging around. I went back through and I went through this whole history of the rabbinical debate. And what the debate was over was it's unusual to find a three-year-old heifer. For those of you who haven't had a background in farming, a heifer is an unbred female calf. Or she is just, a, or she may have been bred, but she has not yet had her first calf. So it's very unusual to find a three-year-old heifer. So that was, and when I finally got a hold of my farmer friend, Gene Brown, who most of you know, Gene said, three-year-old heifer, that's really rare. They won't last that long. So he pointed out the same problem. Same thing with the three-year-old female goat. and You have a three-year-old ram. Now the recent uh, Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H, which is the modern uh, uh, a modern translation from the Hebrew text put out by the Jewish uh, uh, Jewish Publication Society, also translates it three-year-old, and there there really don't seem to be other examples of sacrifices. In the scripture where you have a three year old, you do have similar terminology, but it's left untranslated. It's just transliterated in one passage in Isaiah, one passage in Jeremiah. So it's somewhat of a conundrum. But I don't think that the numbers matter whether it's three year old or whether it is, uh, three. We could speculate all day long as to what the significance may be in the difference. But what's interesting is the animals that are used the heifer, the female goat, the ram, the turtle dove, and the pigeon. The word used for the heifer is the Hebrew word egla. The Hebrew word egla, which is different from the word that is used for the red heifer which was the uh, sacrifice of the burnt offering of the red heifer and the scattering of the ashes of the red heifer was used to purify, uh, purify the temple. This is a different word. That's the word uh, parah that's used for a female cow. This is a different word. It refers to a young, uh, a young cow that has not, uh, uh, not been bred yet. The heifer was also used in a couple of different sacrifices. A couple of different sacrifices, specifically in the cleansing ritual in Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 through 9, when there had to be a cleansing of a town when a, uh, a murder had taken place. And in order to uh, cleanse the area after a, uh, a murder had, had taken place, they would sacrifice... An egla, a heifer. The heifer could be also be used as a peace offering in Leviticus 3:1, but it was not to be used for a burnt offering and was prohibited from that in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. So it's used for a peace offering, but not for a burnt offering or for a sin offering. First Samuel 16:2, it's used for a peace offering. The next animal that's mentioned is a female goat. This is an etz, E-T-Z, in transliteration. A female goat. Numbers 15.27, the female goat was used for a sin offering. And it's interesting that the male goat was used as a scapegoat offering. So we have an, uh, a second animal here that's used later on in the Mosaic Law for a sin offering. The th- a third animal mentioned is the aiel, the ram. The ram is used for a trespass offering in Leviticus 5:16 and 17, used for a burnt offering in Leviticus 8:18, 8, and as a peace offering in Leviticus 9, 4. So we have a variety of offerings, peace offering, illustrated, trespass offering, burnt offering, Question, and it's awfully tempting to go into these animals and say that each one of these represents a different dimension of these offerings that are later described in Leviticus. But that's not the point. Remember, Genesis took place, or these events took place in about 2000 B.C. The revelation related to the different categories of Levitical offerings doesn't take place until about 1400 B.C. in the, in the uh, regulations for the Mosaic Law. The point here is not to try, and tempting as it is, the point is not to break down these different animals and try to say that each one represents a different, uh, different dimension of salvation. In their totality, they represent every class of animal, though, that is used to represent salvation. And so rather than going in and saying, okay, the, the, the heifer represents a cleansing offering and to try to tie that to, to uh, confession or that the, uh, the female goat represents a uh, burnt offering, it's to look at them because that hasn't been revealed yet. Abraham has no, no idea of those things. And the best thing to do is look at each one of these, including the turtle dove, which was a substitute sacrifice used for the poor, as well as the, the young bird, translated pigeon, but the gozi, gozal is really just a young of any classification of bird. These were offerings that were used as substitutes for the more expensive animal sacrifices so that the poor would have something to bring. What we see here in Genesis Uh, 15.9 Is that all of these together Represent The total work of Christ On the cross All of these together represent The total work of Christ on the cross And even though The work of Christ on the cross Is yet future All the sacrifices of the Old Testament Foreshadow the work Of Christ on the cross Now the fact that that some of these animals, for example, the ram could, um, could be used for either a trespass offering or a burnt offering or a peace offering, tells us we can't go in here and say it's one or the other. So I think that the whole picture here is of the future redemptive atoning work of Christ on the cross, and it's Christ's work on the cross that becomes the ultimate foundation for all of the covenant promises that God makes in Scripture. Even though these are grounded 2,000 years before the cross, the ultimate foundation is that work of Christ on the cross. And so the foundation for the covenant is the work of Christ on the cross as pictured in these sacrifices. So Abram brings... All these to God, and he cuts them in two. And there's some debate among scholars if this is the origin of the idiom that you find in the uh, Hebrew language for entering into a covenant. It's called cutting a covenant. The verb that is used is a Hebrew word which means to cut, the word karat, and it means to cut. And so it's tempting to say that in this ceremony where you have a sacrifice and you cut the animal in half, that that's where the uh, word came from, and it could be. And the practice was that if two people are entering into this, this covenant, that you would take your sacrificial animals, cut them in two, one half representing each of the parties of the covenant, and you would lay them side by side. And then the two people who were entering into the covenant would walk between the, the, the animals. And what is being pictured is the seriousness of the contract. In effect, what you're saying is, may this be done to us if we break the contract. May we we be killed. That's why it's sealed in blood. And so Abram brings the animals, cuts them in two, places each opposite the other, uh, except for the birds. He lays the birds out whole. And in verse 11 we read that there's an assault on this Covenant, And this is unclean animals, the vultures, come down on the carcasses, and Abram drives them away. And this is a picture of the fact that there will constantly be attacks on the Abrahamic covenant down through history. But God is going to provide a solution. And so he causes Abram to go to sleep. It's not up to Abram to secure the covenant. God is going to secure it. Verse 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And this is a recognition of all of the assaults that would come against the Jews down through history, the assaults against the Abrahamic covenant the demonic assaults that would seek to destroy the Jews. And then, while well, Abram is in this uh, slumber, while he's in this uh, unconscious state, God speaks to him and says, "No, certainly that your strangers will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years." You see, Abram, there are going to be problems. There are going to be tests. There are going to be hardships. There are going to be assaults against people. What I'm going to do through you with your descendants isn't going to just happen overnight. It's not some simple thing. There will be these problems. And so we have this prophecy related to the bondage in Egypt. And in verse 16, But in the fourth generation, they shall return here... For the iniquity of the Amorites, that is some of the present Canaanites living in the land, is not yet complete. And this just shows God's grace to the Canaanites. He gives them time again and again to uh, turn back to him. And so for 400 years he will keep the Jews out of the land until the Amorites have fully demonstrated their, uh, their sin and their depravity. And their perversion. The essence of this passage is is somewhat challenged, or seems to be conflicted with a couple other passages in the New Testament. Here we're told they'll be in bondage for 400 years, and there's one other way of expressing this in the Scripture. Acts 7, verse 6, we have a reiteration of this, where... Stephen said, but God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the issue is, what's the starting point and the end point of this 400 years? And the starting point of the 400 years has to do with their bondage. It's 400 years of bondage. We can't make this simply a round number because of, that wouldn't do justice to our view of the inerrancy of scripture. So they were going to be in bondage for 400 years. This means that if we were to chart this out, we know that in 1446 BC, 1446, we have the Exodus. Prior to that, there's 400 years of bondage. So this is about 1846 is when the bondage occurred and they go into slavery. And then there was 30 years before that and this takes us back to the time, the last time in Genesis when the Abrahamic covenant is confirmed to Jacob. This gives us 400 years of bondage plus another 30 years. Now, why am I bringing that other 30 years in? I'm bringing that other 30 years in because there are other passages in the New Testament that mention 430 years, Old Testament as well. For example, Exodus 1240. Now, the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. The prophecy was 400 years, but remember, pay attention to Genesis 15, says they would be in bondage for 400 years. Exodus 1240 just says they would be in Egypt 430 years. So they were there for 30 years before the bondage began, before the slavery began. And then, verse 41, it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. This is reiterated in Galatians 3.17, where Paul says, This I say that the law, which was 430 years later, later than what? Later than the last confirmation of the covenant, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise to no effect. So what we see is that the scriptures clearly support each other and there's no contradiction even when it comes to the numbers. Now we have one other passage that relates to this, Acts 13:19 and 20. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that he gave them judges for about 450 years. Now the phrase there is about 450 years. So if we add this up again, we've got 400 years in slavery. We've got 40 years after the exodus in the wilderness with the exodus generation. And then we've got seven years During the time of the conquest. And if we add that up, we come up with 447 years. And remember, the passage said about 450 years. So it's a divinely inspired approximation. But in the other passages, in our passage in Acts, I mean in Genesis 15, it doesn't say slavery will be about 500 years. It says it will be. Uh, precisely 500 years. And after that, and also the, we read in verse 14, also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And that was exactly what happened. When God told the Jews to leave, He said to go and take plunder from those who had been their masters. And so they left Egypt with the spoils of Egypt. The scripture says, with millions of dollars and uh gold and silver and precious stones and many other artifacts. That's the first part of the prophecy. It has to do with the destiny of his people. The second part has to do with Abram's own stability. He says, Now as for you you shall go to your fathers in peace. Notice how God directly addresses the issue. Abram, don't be afraid. Then he tells him, Abram, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees, the past. And then he tells him the future, you will go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried at a good old age. God is comforting Abram in the midst of this contract with the certainty of God's provision. But he reminded them, him in verse 16, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here. They're going to meet hardship. They're going to be out of the land. You'll die in peace, but they're going to come back. And, how, and the, the question or the issue for us is to determine how this contract or how this prophecy was fulfilled. Was it fulfilled literally or allegorically? Were these numbers precise or were they just spiritualized? They're precise. It's exactly, when we look at the Acts passages, we look at Galatians, we see that the numbers are to be interpreted literally. And God is showing us this early in Genesis, that prophecy should be interpreted literally and not in a figurative or spiritual uh, manner. And then we see the uh, final ceremony in verse 17 to 20 came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. These two elements, the smoking oven, we have fire here and and light. And this is a picture, as we see many times in the Old Testament, of the holiness of God, of His integrity. And it is His character that secures the covenant. And that's what these picture, the smoking oven and the burning torch, picture his integrity, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice. This is the basis that's for the the security of the contract. On the same day that he made a covenant with Abram, in verse 18, we read, To your sentence I have given this land, not some other land, but this land, from the river of Egypt, which some interpret to be the Nile, The others interpret it to be the Wadi el-Arish, which is in the northwest border of Egypt. And that is the the predominant interpretation, It is that it is the Wadi el-Arish. Older generations took it as the Nile. Uh, It could be either one. Uh, I I don't think that the arguments for one or the other are that certain. Uh, From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And what this covers is all the territory between Egypt which would include the Sinai, all of what is now uh, uh, Israel, the disputed territories, Lebanon, uh, much of Syria, all of Jordan, and into Iraq. All of that territory is part of the promised land, and at no point did uh, the Jews ever control all of that land. And it's described by its inhabitants, the various Canaanite tribes in verses 19-20. The Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. These are the current inhabitants of the land when Abram was there. These are the people that will be eventually driven out and defeated by the Jews, but only Partially. So just as God promised this in a contract, it will be fulfilled literally in the future. So we know where that land will be. We know that eventually Abram must be resurrected to come back and possess that land. And we know that eventually God will restore the Jews to that land. And that's why this has been the centerpiece of a battle for 4,000 years. Because Satan is seeking to prove that God's character can't be trusted. And so his goal is to try to break the Abrahamic covenant. And one of his tools for doing that is anti-Semitism and all of its various forms, including its current manifestation as anti-Zionism, that is, hostility to the Jews being in the land. We'll come back next time and begin our study of the 16th chapter of Genesis with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank You for this time to study Your Word, to be reminded of Your faithfulness, to be reminded of how easy it is for us to succumb to our own arrogance and fears and anxieties, and not to trust You, but that Your character underlies all of Your Word, all of Your promises, and is the only basis for stability and certainty in this life. Father, we pray that You would challenge us with the things that we studied,